Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello everyone, welcome to a very special Rocker Report preview as we build up to our next league game against Swindon Town at the Energy Check County Ground. We are very lucky to be joined today by a man who played a part in breaking Sunderland fans' hearts at Wembley 30 years ago as a player and is now currently the academy manager at Swindon Town. We are delighted to be joined by Alan McLaughlin. Hi Alan. Hiya, how are you? I'm good, thanks. I imagine uh, you're as pleased as everyone else that uh, footballers managed to get going again. Well I am because... um... It's obviously a big void in our lives, isn't it? It's uh, It plays a huge part uh, socially, mentally as well. People getting ready for Saturday, chatting about their size, etc. The one thing we, na- we need now is obviously fans in stadiums, and that's fairly obvious, whether it be the Stadium of Light, whether it be the County Ground, whether it be Fratton Park. You, We need fans in the stadium in a sensible way, which I'm sure can be organised. Uh, you know, clubs can organise... Uh, various things and uh, and go through various processes and, and it should be something that should be relatively easy to do but we're dealing with a government unfortunately that is, is not doing things quite so easy and making things a little bit difficult at the time so um, yeah football's there I watch it on TV unfortunately I don't get the same buzz I'm not feeling yeah, it's, it um, it's not the same is it's it? not the same no you, you sit there and you end up going to your phone and you end up, um, you know, changing channels because you just don't feel the energy from from the fans, and you know, and I don't think anyone realised the impact uh, would be quite as um, severe, really, on how you perceive and watch a game. So, yeah, quite interesting as well. Yeah, just before we get right into it and get into the kind of relevant stuff, I suppose. While I was doing some prep, I came across the same fact a couple of times and thought I'd uh, double check uh, with you before we get into it. Um, you're originally from Manchester and grew up around the, the main road area, around yeah. the stadium, the old stadium, which is a ground I used to love to visit, although it did get a bit hairy now and again on the way I'm to sure the ground uh, when, when I was a young lad. But yeah, but I read that you're in the same class uh, at school as a certain Noel Gallagher. Was that was that true? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, the first two stroke three years at, at, secondary, school, uh, at secondary school, we were in the same class. And then I moved up in, you know, I'm not sure why I was hoofed out of one class and I moved up a couple of classes. And the last two years we weren't in the same class, but uh, we did go to Man City together. I did tag, even though I was a United fan, I wasn't letting my mates really know. I just wanted to go and watch a game. Plus I live right by the ground as well. So it was up to them to make their way to me. And we sort of like we met. Uh, and as you can imagine, the back of the Kipax there where you were probably corralled. Uh, was where I used to, and we used to sneak under at about 10 past three, uh, particularly in the early days uh, under the turnstiles. But yeah, that's where I used to watch football because I, I wasn't allowed to go and watch Man United because it was it was too far across town. I couldn't go by myself. My dad was working and I literally lived outside the ground, uh, literally in the houses in front of uh, the ground of the old main road, anyone. And I'm sure there's plenty of uh, Sunderland fans that remember it. I lived on the houses right opposite the ground. So uh, it, it was easy for me. 
I loved going to Main Road. Uh, was was he a decent footballer? Just, just no, he was crap. Um, <laughs> he probably claims he's decent, but no. Um, but what I would say is, uh, we didn't meet each other for years, and I I think it was the '98 season, and uh, our opening game of the season uh, when I was at Portsmouth was Man City away, and it it was a baking hot first day of the season, and uh, I was in the shade, sort of like warming up. And uh, next in, there's a bit of a commotion. Uh, Liam came out first, followed by Noel, made their way down to the ports for fans, giving him grief and stick. And then uh, Noel obviously, obviously realised I was playing at Portsmouth at that time, looked around and I spotted him, he spotted me and he's run over and jumped on me, basically, you know, like <laughs> jumped on my back. So after that game, there was obviously, after the game, there was a lot of conversation afterwards with the press. We drew 2-2. And most of the press just wanted to know why and what the reaction was. Why was Noel Gallagher jumping on your back? And, you know, I had to tell him, um, obviously, that I, I, I did know him from back in the day, really. Although we hadn't spoken maybe five, six years at that point because we'd left school and had moved on and he had. Uh, but I got offered a significant amount of money, I remember, to um, spill the beans on him as, as uh, him at okay. school. Because at the height of their fame at that point, uh, I didn't take the bait, though, because it, it just wasn't worth the hassle. And I didn't want to yeah. be seen to be some sort of freeloader who was going to make a few quid out of the situation. I mean, I could do it now if anyone's listening. <laughs> I'd quite happily do it. <laughs> well, I mean, just obviously getting into your career at Swindon Town, I mean, just to kind of set us up for, for that 1990, I mean, um, you joined after being released by Manchester United in 1986, but your career seemed to take off after the appointment of uh, Ozzy Ardiles. I mean, it was his first appointment in football and he started off as a player manager, so he actually played a couple of games, but he seemed to have a huge impact not only on the club, um, but you as a player because you, you were flying in that first season. Yeah, it, it was. And, and and to be fair, I was 19 when I moved to uh, Swindon, moved down to Swindon. I mean, I didn't even know where Swindon was. And, it, and at that point, I didn't even know where Wiltshire was. So uh, to move away from home was difficult at 19. Uh, to move to a side that had been promoted as well uh, was difficult. Um, I was one of the younger players in and around the squad and I was sub- supplementing really the team. I think I only made eight or nine appearances in, in my first season and was loaned, uh, sent out on loan to Torquay and literally sent out on loan. There was, there was no, would you mind going or do you fancy it? No, no, you're going. See you later. Uh, we'll see you in two months. Um, and it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because obviously by going to Torquay, uh, who were down at the bottom of the old fourth division then, you know, with real men, who were at the end of their careers battling away. Every penny counted for, every point was important. And uh, it was fantastic, really. Uh, And I earned my corn down there, got some goals, played on a regular basis, and it set me up for the next season. But again, at that point, Swindon got promoted again. And um, they got two promotions on the spin. And I I joined a squad again who were promoted and and Lou Lou Macari had signed some more players. And I found myself on the periphery again. And it wasn't until um, about halfway through that season that I got into the side. And that was only just a bit of luck through a couple of injuries. And I played towards, I think, from Christmas to the end of the season, virtually every game. But then uh, Lou got offered the job at West Ham. Off he went. Ozzy came in and things changed from there. He changed the style of our play. And um, we were the first side uh, I ever played against. Who you know We, we played with the diamond formation. Duncan Shearer, Steve White up front with me at the top of the diamond. And it was experimental, but it worked out fantastically well. And, uh, you know, as, as as we grew as a team through the season, our performances got better and stronger. Uh, and I remember going and, and playing at uh, Roker Park and I think we drew 
uh, but we played really yeah, well on the day. Last goal, wasn't it? And I managed to score away. Think- that it was actually November, and, and I'd scored my tenth goal of the season by November. So I was really flying, and I set up Duncan Shearer's second goal of the game to to equalise. I think, and um, no, we just um, we found a formula. We found a group of players that were willing to to play for the manager and give everything, and we found a manager that was very happy to engage with us. And like you said, he played a couple of games. Uh, and he had a particular stinker at, at Oldham. And he basically asked us to vote whether he should retire or not, which is a quite a strange vote, really. If you imagine a World Cup winner standing in front of you asking you to put your hand up whether you think he should retire. And you're thinking, <laughs> Shit, you know, if I put my hand up here, he, he might drop me for next week. So, um, but he took it in good spirit and he decided to, to manage from the sidelines. And uh, we went on and did quite well that season. Yeah, well, that, that brings us perfectly uh, to the end of that 1989-90 season. As I said, I think you'd scored about 15 by the time I got to the, that end of the season. Sunderland and Swindon both finishing the playoffs. We beat Newcastle in the semi yeah. by winning 2-1 at St James's. I think you beat Blackburn 4-2 on aggregate over the, the two semi-final two, uh, yeah, that'd for, be about uh, right, first yeah. and second legs. And it's the first ever season that the playoffs finals were held at Wembley over the bank holiday weekend. Can you remember that adding kind of an extra incentive you know, on top of promotion to, to kind of get to that final? I think most of the players were annoyed, really, because it was it meant the season dragging on to the end of May. If you can imagine, you know, you sort of like you get through, you've got the playoffs and then you've got, a t- I think we had a 10-day gap between finishing against yeah. Blackburn and then to the... So most of the lads were, oh, is the season ever going to finish? I think we'd played at that point, we'd played about 54 or 55 games at that point. We'd actually played Bolton four, time, uh, four times in a in, in a cup game. And it took four four games and three extra times to settle it. So you can imagine, you know, we were feeling quite fatigued. But I suppose in one way, that little bit of a gap helped us um, up to the Sunderland game. But no, it didn't really phase us too much. Um, like I said, we were feeling confident. Um, my great friend, uh, Paul Hardiman, who plays, who played for Sunderland, played in the in that game against um, Newcastle, and, and, he, and he spoke to me about that uh, in, in in later times. But um, no, I mean, whether we were deciding whether we'd sooner play Sunderland Newcastle, it really didn't matter at that point. The fact of the matter was we were just dying to get to Wembley. As you can imagine, I think probably every player that played that day, apart from a couple, maybe Eric Gates, uh, maybe I'm just guessing here, Fraser Digby and goal potentially. I think Dave Kerslake, who was the right back for Swindon, had played at Wembley before, but I think probably, uh, or Bracewell probably would have played there, I would mm. imagine, at some A few times, I think. <laughs> yeah, he would have played. But I'd say 80% of the players hadn't probably played there. So there was a buzz about playing at Wembley uh, and, and, and actually going there. And obviously, the one thing you don't want to do is come away from Wembley and not, not win. And we were fortunate, off to, fortunate, fortunate enough on the day to pull out a fantastic 1-0 performance. And I can remember the game vividly because of the amount of chances we missed. I know Sunderland started quite brightly. I don't know if you can remember the game too too well or you've seen little bits on the video. Um, certainly Eric had half a chance where he, he crossed it instead of maybe having a pop at goal. Uh, Marco obviously was a, a threat down the right-hand side once. Uh, but once we'd weathered that early storm, really the game was only going one way. Um, I've counted since about 10 clear-cut chances. And my chance, actually, an opportunity was the the least likely to have gone in the back of the net because the rest of the chances were what you'd call normal goals that a, Shearer, a Duncan Shearer might have scored, a Steve White might have scored, a, a Foley, a Steve Foley, our central midfielder, normally stuck away. 
and we didn't. And it left us sort of like hanging on towards the end of the game, thinking that Sunderland might get something out of it. But uh, we managed to prevail and it was one of our strong performances of the season and, and to do it at Wembley on the day against a very good Sunderland side, by the way, uh, in terms of experience, a little bit of youth in there uh, was, a, was a great victory. But it all meant nothing, yeah. uh, as you yeah, know. Well, yeah. It, it well, meant I something mean, to Sunderland a bit further down the line. <laughs> and uh, you certainly, um, I'm sure the likes of Mr Ron Atkinson at Sheffield Wednesday, uh, they were yeah. absolutely fuming because they should, felt they should have stayed in the uh, first division and Sunderland should have stayed where they were. Um, so the, I, I remember all the fiora that, about that. But the next day, I, I'd luckily been selected for Ireland and their World Cup squad. And I missed all the celebrations back at Swindon. But like I said, the 50-odd games we played that season uh, all accumulated to nothing, really, after that brilliant performance at Wembley and um, and, and beating Sunderland and uh, ended up us being demoted two divisions. But I also remember on the day walking back because Sunderland had the tunnel end, the fans, and some really gracious Sunderland fans. And I, I can say this, you know, and I know this for a fact, clapping us, the Swindon players, off the pitch. I think their te- they'd realised their team had took a bit of a battering that day, even though it was 1-0 and graciously clapped us and, you know, which was, you don't see that very often. So that was that, that was great to see. Yeah, I think I think when Sunderland fans think about that game, I think the first thing is, it's always the performance of Tony Norman. Yeah, unbelievable. He stopped it being a cricket score. Yeah. Fantastic. I mean, I've seen some of the saves and obviously you reminisce sometimes and it comes up on your timeline, maybe on whatever, and uh, the goal comes up and you get reminded of it every other year. But... Tony on that day was uh, was fantastic and he'll be probably as annoyed as anyone else that the goal that beat him took a deflection off Gary's shin pad, which I aimed for, by the way. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it was a tactical ploy, I would say. Um, and it come off him and went in the net. Now, I'm pretty sure he probably would have saved the shot going down to his right-hand side. But um, I think any Sunderland fan that cared to watch the game or was at the game yeah. would walked away and gone, you know, We've got to take that one on the chin. <laughs> we got well and truly yeah. battered that day. Absolutely. It was a roasting hot day. And I think, I mean, because I was only young at that point, but I don't think I'd ever seen a team keep the ball so much and so well, Yeah, uh, you know, especially kind of in the flesh. I mean, we mentioned earlier about our dealers, but I mean, was, was he arguably a bit of ahead of his time in that respect? Because not many pl- teams played like that then. No, I, I well, I can't think of any, particularly in any of the... Um, either League 1, 2, 3 or 4 at the time. Uh, he was, and tactically very astute in what he was doing. I mean, I was really surprised. I thought Sunderland on the day might have tried to match match us up in some way. Um, the amount of goals we scored that season, I mean, I scored 17, Duncan Shearer got 30, Steve White got 30-odd. So it was a bit of a goal machine um, team in terms of uh, chances. And... At that point, then, we were really flowing and very surprised they played 4-4-2 against us and left me in sort of spaces which I could only dream of, really, to be getting getting into and causing problems. And and again, although the goal was a deflection, I've worked that position and we worked that position so many times during the season. So from our perspective, we were quite surprised and obviously it was unique and Aussie worked on it. It took a while for us to get used to it, but um, yeah, it he was very underrated in terms of tactically uh, how astute he was. And obviously then when he went on to Tottenham, uh, it, it was a very open team, if if you can remember. Mm. And uh, it led to them, you know, maybe winning 5-4 or losing 6, you know, losing 3-2 three, 
3-2, very open games. But that was just the way he liked his teams to play. And, you know, we were certainly the um, the epicenter, you know, we was probably the the bit he could get his teeth into to see whether this system could work and he could get the players to play a certain way and it worked for him. And uh, he, he did, you know, relay back many times to us about his time in Argentina and playing this sort of way. And, he, and that was a natural way of playing for him. So, um, yeah, we eventually got used to it and we, we got used to our roles and responsibilities. And like I said, I was quite surprised on the day that even as the game was the amount of chances that were being created that Sunderland never changed it at any point to try and disrupt what we were doing. But yeah, it, it, it you know, it was what it was in the end and um, Sunderland benefited from, from our um, misfortune in terms of what had gone on financially at the club. But yes. the one thing I, I need to say now is, and I need Sunderland fans that are listening, uh, and there's, there's hopefully lots of them, um, I've got it in good authority that the... The Football League at the time uh, knew of our position prior to the semi-finals. And I think um, the word is that they decided they would gamble that out of the four teams, Swindon wouldn't be the team that got promoted and they could deal with it. So, um, yeah, so it ended, ended up us going to Wembley. And yeah. we didn't get any medals that day. Really? So really? I don't know, it's the first time that a team has ever been promoted and no medals given out to any of the players because, again, I think... Now, if that was Sunderland walking up the steps, maybe the box mm. might have been lifted up and the medals given out because they yeah. knew the situation. But I'm looking desperately along thinking, I should, where's, where's my medal? <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, Swindon never never decided to tee us up with a medal either, so it works both ways, but never mind. It's, yeah. it's, yeah. it's gone now. I spoke to a few of the Sunderland squad uh, around that time, who played in that final, yeah. a couple of names that you mentioned there, and they've all said to Iran they they knew nothing of the situation and that they didn't think anything was going to kind of come of it. They were just it was kind of all about the football and who won on the day. I mean, with, with the, I imagine with the way you played as well, that all the Swindon Town players were were in the same boat. Yeah, um, exactly, that. exactly that that we had no idea what was really going on in the background. I mean, we had no idea on some of the um, um, stuff that was going on at the football club. Absolutely no idea of of what allegedly was going on. We had received some money during the season. For example, if we played three games, um, say if we played on a Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, you know, management would come in and say, right, if if, if you win all three games, uh, you'll all receive a hundred pound bonus each. And we we got little incentives like that through the season, but nothing that was huge where you were you were given thousands of pounds or anything like that. There were just little incentives, or it might be a case of. Uh, we're playing, say we were playing Sunderland in the league at, at the county ground in, in September. They might come in and say um, £150 for man of the match, uh, £100 for second, £50 for third, as voted by the man, as voted by the, the, the manager and his staff. And there were little increments like that, which, were, which weren't anything to, you know, we didn't think anything of it, really. It was a nice little something you put in your pocket. But these things were happening in various clubs at various levels and certainly above us in the first division. They were... There was lots of things going on and certainly we were made an example of. But obviously yeah. once they started to delve further into the club finances and again, players didn't understand or realise or weren't told, uh, we just got on with the games on a Saturday or a Tuesday or whatever it was and we had no idea of what was about to, to hit us really. And it, it was a real shock. And like I said, I was away in Italy. Luckily, I, that took my mind off things. And, it, and my girlfriend at the time and my wife now, Debbie, she phoned me to say that we'd been to multi-two divisions and I literally mm. couldn't believe it. And I knew at that point then that the, that the team would be broken up because the club couldn't survive financially. And uh, yeah. I ended up being the first player to go. But it wasn't until the December, the following season, that, that I actually left for Southampton. 
And ironically, mm-hmm. then I think we played uh, Sunderland about three games into my uh, <laughs> time at um, uh, Southampton. Yes. I think it was a second home game I played. So yeah, that that, that, that was quite ironic. Yeah, yeah, huge move for, for about a million, wasn't it? Big, big move, wasn't it, to seven? Yeah, but yeah, I mean, leaving nineteen ninety behind, um, you nearly crossed paths again with Sunderland um, in nineteen ninety two when you were at Portsmouth. Portsmouth reached the the FA Cup semi final as we did, and you played Liverpool. Um, and as we beat Norwich one uh, nil in the other semi final, you drew with Liverpool after extra time, which meant back then it was a replay. Yeah, uh, of course, um, in old money. And after you came agonisingly close to hitting the bar in the last five minutes. Yeah, thanks for reminding me of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Portsmouth end up getting beat off on penalties, especially because you knew Sunderland had, had already beaten Norwich and were in the final. I mean that that must have been maybe a bigger blow than then kind of maybe normal if you were going on to play an Arsenal or a Liverpool or someone else like that in the final? Well, it was obviously gutted to draw Liverpool in the semi-final. You know, we, we beat Nottingham Forest in, in the quarter-final. Yeah, mm. so we were, everyone was trying to avoid Liverpool, just the fact it was Liverpool. Um, yeah. But we an, ended up um, playing against them. And again, a different game plan to Aussie, to sit in, contain, counter-attack, and it worked perfectly. And then uh, actually I got taken off then with about three minutes to, to, to go, uh, four minutes. No, it was about five minutes to go before the end of the uh, the game. And um, I, I was marking Molly Whelan. That was my job on the day. And ironically then, there's a free kick. Alan Knight, John Barnes takes it. Alan Knight knocks it onto the post and who steps up and taps it over the line, Ronnie Whelan. So there's, a, mm. you know, so that sort of like spoiled that day. But certainly, you know, I think it would have been brilliant really for everyone if it had been a, a Sunderland-Portsmouth final. I think mm, for yeah. football itself, generally, for it to be a final of, of 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 two teams who hadn't been there in you know h- however many years, and it would just added been something different rather than your, your your big teams getting to the final. And I think over the two games, we, um, we we probably deserved it over the two games. I mean, at Highbury particularly, you know, there was chances. I had one uh, saved on the um, I had a back heel that Ray Houghton knocked off the line. I had a great save from Grobola from a shot I had from a corner and. Then Darren went through and scored and we just didn't hang on. And um, yeah, I mean, we'd have, like Sunderland, would have fancied their chances against to play yeah, uh, yeah. Portsmouth. So we were all fingers crossed and it didn't quite work out that way. <laughs> but Sunderland got there and um, um, the rest is history, really. So yeah, yeah it, it was disappointing on the day for him, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was one of those. I always remember that Liverpool, uh, Liverpool Portsmouth semi final. It was one of those old fashioned epic kind of semi finals that you don't don't really see anymore. But uh, but there you go. Which is a shame. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, a, another quick game I wanted to mention that, you know, that was against uh, Sunderland this time that you were involved in. And I did th- <laughs> apologise in advance. I did think twice about mentioning this one. But it was when you were um, in the Portsmouth side a year later that I visited Roger Park in May 1993. Yeah. Uh, Portsmouth were, were three points clear of West Ham on your way to the Premier League under Jim Smith. And Sunderland, we'd actually won one in 11 and we yeah. were just above the relegation zone. And then utterly, I was there that day, utterly bizarre game. Uh, we had two players sent off, two penalties and won 4-1. Um, but it was completely out of the blue. Um, and, and you ended up in the playoffs where I think really you should have you should have gained automatic promotion. That yeah, that, 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 that was the game-changing game for us. We were we were flying uh, Ports at the time. Again, uh, Walsh and Whittingham up front. Again, me playing in that position just behind them two. Um and it worked really well. I mean, Guy scored 49, Guy Whittacombe scored 49 goals that year. Myself and Paul got double figures each that season as well. And we travelled up there really, really confident. And it just went to pot. Um, first of all, Guy Butters got sent off. 
uh, uh, after about, I don't know how many minutes, let's say 25 minutes, handle a ball. I think Don Goodman uh, had a header that was going in and Guy, uh, sorry, Guy Butters then handled it, saved it, straight red, he was off. So we're down to 10 men then, uh, but still still within the game. Um, I think it was a penalty, then they scored it, but we still felt confident, creating still ch- chances. And then just before half-time, Paul Walsh gets sent off. And uh, I think Paul went in and redecorated the the change rooms at Roker. I think uh, I think he got in a fair bit of trouble. So we played with nine men for uh, the second half and um, got beat. What, did you say it was three one? Wasn't it? Was it three one? It was four one. Four one in the end. And I actually yeah. remember uh, Guy Whittingham going through twice when it was we were getting beat, and he had one on ones versus um, I assume it was Tony in, in goal, and he missed them both, and. Um, Looking back now, if it have stuck one or both of them away and we'd lost the game, um, it wouldn't have been a, the end of the world because we we, uh, we only missed out uh, on, on goal difference. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, so, I mean, you could say that through the whole season, couldn't you, from August, if he'd have scored there or I'd have scored. But two, that was a really significant game because then it led into the semi, into the playoffs against Leicester and we were missing uh, Guy, with, um, Guy Butters and Paul Walsh, more importantly, mm-hmm. Paul Walsh. And he was a major factor Fantastic, in us uh, not getting uh, certainly to the final, to, who, who eventually was uh, Swindon Leicester in the final. So, yeah, that was probably my most disappointing at club level uh, because we were such a good team, played really well that season and uh, missed out. But that was a significant game. And obviously you were there to witness it and I witnessed it on the pitch. And the two players getting sent off re- really, really hurt us. And, um, yeah, cost us in the end promotion, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was so bizarre that I think I think our form was so bad that even with nine men, I think you were you were giving us a game. <laughs> and I'll be honest, even with nine men, we were creating chances. So yeah, you know, it yeah. wasn't one of the best Sunderland sides that certainly were around at the time. And like that's what I said that, that at nine men, it was two one on ones that guy went through on, and uh, yeah, he didn't convert on the day. But I mean, who could have argued with someone not converting after he scored forty nine that season? Yeah, so yeah, you know, incredible. he he moved on to Aston Villa after that season, uh, not getting up, and uh, yeah, we, we sort of like that team. Unfortunately, they didn't keep the team together, and it, it broke up really, and uh, things were a bit lean thereafter for a while. Yeah, I did think about uh, mentioning this, so apologies for that, but I do remember turning up thinking, how many are we going to get uh, turned over by this week? Because uh, we, I was looking at the the stats bizarrely, and I were running that season. We actually, yeah, uh, we won three out of the last eighteen. Wow, and that 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 was one of them, but a completely bizarre game. And and I didn't want to leave your playing career behind. Um, just before we move on to your, uh, to Swindon Town, you know, forty two caps for Republic of Ireland and uh, and two World Cups. And I know you mentioned getting called up to the nineteen ninety squad. That was in strange circumstances. So I mean, in terms of your experience with the two, was it was it two completely different experiences because you're at different stages of your international career? Yeah, definitely. The first time I was called up was literally out of the blue. It was the night before the playoff final against Sunderland. So I was uh, in the hotel. Well, I say it was late afternoon and Maurice Setters, uh, the assistant to Jack, phoned the hotel and eventually got through to me. And uh, he told me I was in the squad, which I couldn't believe anyway. So, you know, all my birthdays are coming once. I was travelling to Italy. I had no idea around the circumstance of when of that conversation and when I did get to Italy that Jack had decided to leave Gary Waddock out of the squad, he, although he was initially in the 22 and Jack had a change of heart. And I don't know whether the fact that I'd, um, 
I, I, I'm not sure. He never explained to me why. Um, I never asked why. I was just happy to be there. But obviously, it wasn't till I was there and the lads, who I knew some of them in some way, and, I, and they sort of like told me the situation with Gary, which was terrible for him. But I just had to get on with the job in hand, really. And then, uh, then I had the, uh, then I find out my room partner's Bernie Slaven. And uh, that makes things an interest in six weeks away because uh, Bernie's quite unique, as you probably know, up there in the northeast. And uh, yeah, yeah that, that was an interesting uh, f- maybe five or six weeks with Bernie, but it was great. Um, yeah, so that was different. There were five substitutes in the 1990 World Cup. I somehow managed to get onto the bench. Uh, we'd played a game against Malta. Uh, prior to the World Cup, after I had arrived into Malta, we played Malta in a friendly, and I, I was given my first appearance. Although it wasn't a, um, it was just my first appearance for Ireland. Really, it was in a friendly. It wasn't a competitive game, and uh, Frank Stapleton scored. I think he equaled the record or, or beat the record for goals for Ireland at that point in that game, and I played well in the game. I remember hitting the bar, getting round the pitch quite well. I was obviously confident after the the the, the, the playoff final. And I must have left the pressure on Jack. And uh, I found myself, because Ronnie Whelan was injured, uh, I ended up being sub uh, against England. And like I said, five nominated. But then when it comes to the World Cup in 94, uh, I was lucky enough to to score the equaliser uh, in Northern Ireland to take us to the World Cup. But then when we arrived in the World Cup in, in 94, there was a slightly different dynamic because all everyone was sub. Whereas before there was four or five lads left out, now everyone's sub. And it was always quite amusing. I remember looking down the bench when Jack used to look round and, you know, he'd look round maybe trying to think, who shall I bring on? And you'd see all these little heads and pleading with him to put me on, please, <laughs> you know, because everyone wants to play in the World Cup or make an appearance. And I obviously wanted to make an appearance in the uh, 94 World Cup, but it was down to circumstance. It was down to, you know, uh, how the game was going. Um, uh, there were a couple of boring games. I think the Norway game was pretty turgid in terms of each team knew a draw was quite quite, quite sufficient and it, it was going nowhere really. So there wasn't any changes there. Um, and the Mexico game, when we played Mexico, uh, John Aldridge came on and, and made a difference and scored. Uh, and again, that was the last substitution. So I think someone went off injured. Um, so yeah, that was the main difference uh, in terms of um, the actual tournaments themselves. Very hot in America. Uh, I mean, ridiculously hot down in Florida with a three, you know, a three o'clock kickoff against the Mexicans. You have not got a chance. And uh, <laughs> it was like being playing the, you know, playing the Antarctic eleven, and you know, at, um, <laughs> half six in the evening when the lights gone on the floodlights, you'd have no chance. So that was a difficult game, but no, fantastic experience for me. Um, Forty-two caps, all stemmed from, like I say, that as you mentioned before, that confidence given to me by. The opportunity by Lou Macari to give me the chance when I had been released by United, which I'll never forget. Then the uh, the belief that Aussie put into me uh, as a player to be able to play well consistently with a new formation. And uh, then the rest of my career panned out from there, really. And I, I was so lucky to get to 35 uh, and, and actually retired on my 35th birthday, actually. It was the last game of the season in 2000, I think it was. Um, so that was my last game. Uh, it, was, it was for Rochdale against... Uh, Bristol Rovers and I managed to score so it was a perfect ending really <laughs> and uh, yeah. that's how it finished I was going to say about the 94 World Cup I imagine the, the sidelines was probably one of the most interesting places to be when uh, one of my memories of that is Jack Charlton and John Aldridge yeah. um, uh, I, I, I'm trying to 
think of how to put it, remonstrating with the officials, I think. <laughs> uh, Charlie O'Leary was, uh, and, you know, Charlie's 98 now. He he, he was uh, our kitman at the time. And uh, Char- now, I don't know whether Charlie had made a bit of a, a mess up with the um, with the actual, the fourth official's piece of paper for substitutes because something went on. And uh, next thing you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting actually in an air-conditioned... Um, uh, dugout, which was which was the highlight of of the day, really. If you didn't get on, you were nice and cool. And when Jack asked you to warm up, you weren't too keen to go out there. But uh, yeah, I, I saw the ensuing John Aldridge rant, and uh, it's well documented. And then obviously Jack got himself in trouble. He got sent off, and then he missed the next game, and he had to pay a fine, uh, which I'm sure he didn't pay, but the FII did pay for him. So um, yeah, it was an incredible time. Uh, unfortunately, my you know family could go out there, but my wife was. Uh, pregnant at the time with my uh, with my daughter Megan, so she ne- she never made it out there. So I was flying solo out in America, and uh, mm. yeah, it was um, it would have been nice to have made an appearance out there because you always want to. But mm. at least I've made them two appearances in 1990. So it's like, like I said, I can't complain with my career. It was a a lovely mm. career, a great career over a long time, and I enjoyed all the battles with Sunderland, and particularly mm. Borley kicking the absolute <laughs> yeah. shin pods off of me um, on a. A yearly basis for many, many years. But um, the thing I liked about Borley was I was square with him and fair with him. No rolling around, no messing, no back chat. And I knew I was getting it every single game. And he didn't disappoint, to be fair. But I think he respected me as well because I used to get up and just get on with the game and caused him yeah. problems and bits and bobs. So, no, um, special ground Roker. I liked it. Yeah, still got uh, linger for Roker Park, but uh, but there you go. To the present day, um, you're now academy manager at Swindon Town and you had worked uh, at Portsmouth for a number of years alongside a couple of people you mentioned, Guy Whittingham and Paul Hardiman. Uh, so how did you end up uh, back at Swindon in, in the role that you've got now? Well, I got the sack from Portsmouth. That was, that was, <laughs> uh, I, as you can imagine, somewhere. I wasn't very happy. Um, but um, I was 13 years at Portsmouth uh, as a player, uh, as an um, academy coach. And then obviously Guy got the job and he asked me eventually to go up and help him in the first team. And then Guy uh, got the sack. I mean, the club was in the right state at that point. I mean, uh, in two administrations and it was all over the place. Uh, But I'm proud to say that, you know, even at that time through administrations, we've managed to keep and we kept the academy together at that point. And some fantastic sales have gone out the door since. The likes of Jed Wallace, Adam Webster at Brighton. Uh, Dan Butler at Peterborough, uh, to name but a few. Ben Close now played over 100 games for Portsmouth. Jack Watmore plays at the back for Portsmouth now. He's had a couple of injuries in his career. Uh, Alex Bass, the goalie. There's a huge uh, production line of players uh, that we managed to to get in because the club was in trouble and they went on to serve the club brilliantly. So my, my, my legacy really, that's the one probably thing I'm really proud of, apart from playing as many games as I did for Pompey uh, and, and really loving the place, is the fact that I managed to have you know worked from a player right the way through to have eighteen months in that first team environment, but um, we were we were saved. Thankfully, the club was saved by the supporters, and uh, you know a, a board was put in place. Um, but it is quite difficult sometimes um, when supporters are uh, are running your club. They eventually uh, see the other side of the other supporters. Um, you know, you, they were taking the acclaim and high fiving each other when things went brilliantly at the start, and quite <laughs> rightly so. But then when you're 10 months in with no money and you've got substandard players and, you know, you've got no training ground to work with on and things are starting to go the other way and the fans, no matter how 
appreciative they are what you've done and they start naming and calling a few directors they get a bit twitchy and uh, exactly what happened and um, I'm quite straightforward and and don't mess around really in terms of when I'm talking football when I'm in, fo- in a football environment I'm not one to to uh, not mince my words or say what I feel and uh, unfortunately it rubbed a, one or two people up the wrong way I feel in the end and um, that was uh, that was the end of me and uh, I left I took a month off but actually in the car back from Portsmouth um, Jeremy Newton who was the academy manager had, had found out that I'd left and uh, he literally offered me the job to work at Swindon that's where I live still so I do live in Swindon so it was an opportunity I, I couldn't turn down really uh, I'd had three years at that point on the road traveling back and forth from Swindon to Portsmouth so I decided to take the job on uh, in the youth department running the 12s to 16s and then eventually I ended up being the uh, the uh, the, uh, the under 18s manager for two seasons and then the opportunity arose to to become academy manager when the academy manager left and uh, the club offered me the role and I couldn't say no so um, yeah that's where I am currently unfortunately through circumstance I'm still furloughed which is an absolute mm. minefield. So since March, I've been off work and not been able to contribute, uh, although the academy is back. So it's a bit of a strange situation, really. But um, I can't complain. I've just got to get my head down and wait for the opportunity to go back, hopefully on the 2nd of November, and get back in and, and, and start work again. Yeah, I was, I was going to um, ask about that in terms of um, the, the, the teams actually getting back into game. I mean, I imagine there's, there's a lot of challenges in getting the young lads just back out onto the pitch. Is it the case that all of the age groups are, are back now or is it only a certain amount of age groups? Playing? No, all the age groups are back, but as you can imagine, Swindon are not in the best place financially. So we've had mm. to take, uh, the club have taken stock on one or two of the coaches and we've cut back on, and they've cut back on certain things and uh, certain things that were in place have, have been cut. Um, and again, until I get back in and find the full extent mm. of everything that's gone on, but there certainly has been some changes. But the good thing about the academy is we've we've produced players and sold players on uh, last season. We managed to to uh, recoup in about two hundred and seventy grand worth of uh, player sales and and income from other pl- uh, players that had signed for Premier League clubs. And there was some add-ons that came into the club, so the club kept benef- benefited from about 270 grand's worth of money into the club from the academy. So, you know, we're, we're proud of that, that we can uh, put players near the first team. It is difficult. Um, last year, the first team did exceptionally well, uh, got promotion with Richie. Uh, this year it might be a little bit more tougher because most of the main players that were the, the key figures last year um, and the salary cap, et cetera, et cetera, they've, they've gone now. So things are going to be a little bit more difficult uh, for Swindon Town and the academy. We've got the academy back, but we were late coming back compared to everyone else. And it's just cutting their cloth accordingly, really. Um, the club in itself and trying to save money where possible in different areas, like every club has got to do at the moment, because just there's no fans coming through the door and there's no cash flow. So, you know, everyone's got to pull yeah. the britches up and try and survive. Yeah, and, and um, yeah, I think the academies at, at kind of clubs, you know, I mean Sunderland as well. I mean, yeah. um, it's just going to become more and more important with with the looks of the way how football's going to go. But um, uh, when I was reading it up, it looked like, um, and I just hope I've got this right. It was up to date information, but uh, Swindon have a category three yeah. status. Yeah, I mean that's right. Um, under the uh, elite uh, players' performance plan, there's clearly kind of planning an investment to to maintain that category kind of level of status for for teams like uh, for like Swindon but I mean did does promotion in the way you know Swindon came up from league 2 last season into league 1 is there always a review of maybe trying to kind of progress that that status maybe even 
kind of move the category to Absolutely two, not. Or was that just... No. No. Just too much investment. Yeah. It's not even in... Not even something that would... Even something I would bring up. It's something that's just too mm. far beyond us. Uh, we do have planning permission for a new training ground. Now that the planning permission has been approved, whether that will end up coming to fruition is, is obviously down to the chairman and to investors or whoever might want to get involved in it. But at the moment, I can't see us as a, a as a football club ever, uh, not say ever, but certainly in the next five, six, seven years, being anything other than a Category 3 uh, academy. Mm. You know, we, we train out of um, a secondary school. Uh, we train at the local college in the evenings. Um, we hire pitches. We have to look round the town for sites to, for even you know futsal or an indoor venue, and everything's a, a bit of a bind and a struggle. But it, we've known nothing else, and I've known nothing else for the last eight years, and that includes being at Portsmouth at the latter end of, the, like I said, when they were in financial difficulties and administration, that was the case then. So I've never been in a privileged position of being able to be at a football club, who's actually in a position where the in academy world uh, a stable. So every day is a battle. Every day is a, a fight. Every year, like I said, our, our objectives are to try and uh, produce our own players, which we do. Uh, the, the you know the production line's been good, um, but also there's a there's a level of responsibility to move players on to gain some income into the club, and that's yeah. something we've managed to do successfully over the past uh, five or six years. You know, I can name Jaden Bogle is is one player that we had who who moved on. Jaden Mitchell Lawson, who's now currently on loan at. Bristol Rovers and there's various boys that have particularly Chelsea have been quite proactive with us and taken players. Uh, Scott Twine, who's playing for Newport currently, is a is is one of our players in terms of uh, he's on loan there. He's got a cracking goal the other night for Newport against Cambridge. He's a youth player that's come through and we hope that he will progress to the first team at some point, uh, uh, maybe next season in terms of uh, and he finds himself in a similar position as I do at the similar age where he's got to go out and toughen up in, in League Two and get himself mentally and physically ready to come back and give it a right go at Swindon next season. So, yeah, that, that, that's our aim. And uh, we just, we tick off one day at a time, really. And uh, we enjoy it and you just get used to it. Yeah, kind of one of the reasons I, I asked that because there's been a, quite a lot of um, discussion with Sunderland fans over the last couple of a couple of seasons because um, when we came down to League One, we've stuck with being a, a Category One uh, academy in league one yeah which is obviously you know slightly slightly strange i suppose in the kind of historical sense that not many clubs have have had that status down in league one if any at all um but from you from your point of view as seeing you know the swindon town academy i mean is it a no-brainer from uh from an outsider looking in that sunderland would stick with a category one status as long as you've got that those funds to support it rather than cutting back well they have the advantage down. they have their own training ground uh so there's no expenditure like like we end up doing spending out of hell of a lot of money on facilities that are not ours, so they have that. Um, they've already got their protocols in place. They the facilities are correct and tick a box, which allow the funding to come in. Um, it's how the club then manage that funding when it comes in, because I'm ninety nine percent sure that's not ring fenced for the academy, as it's not ring fenced at any football club. So when that that money comes into the football club from the EFL. If you're category one, I don't know the exact figure, but certainly uh, at category three level, it's around 400 grand just over that comes in. So everything has to be paid out from that uh, staffing uh, to every amenity, every you know expenditure goes out the door. And if the club overshoots that at academy level, then obviously the club are paying that themselves. So 
like I said, if that money's coming in and Sunderland are using it in different areas, for example, then that becomes very difficult for it to maintain its status as in a Category 1 uh, club further down the line. Um, because obviously, um, like I said, I don't know the ins and outs of it and I, you know, I, I wouldn't claim to, but the, the longer you're down there, the harder that's going to be, unless you've got a sugar daddy who's quite prepared to, to pay for this. But at some point, this academy has got to, at Sunderland, start shelving players out onto the football pitch or the club have got to make a decision that we need to start playing players from our academy and, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's an, enough quality there, but managers sometimes find it very difficult to go and throw academy players in there because obviously they know they've got a short shelf life themselves and got a job to do to get the team promoted. So it's a really, really tough one in terms of um, uh, the right thing to do at the right time. Success breeds success and sometimes academy players don't get anywhere near it. But like mm. I said, when we were in adversity at, at, at Portsmouth, um, the club had no choice other than throwing these kids in and giving them opportunities. And that ended yeah. up being a lifeblood for the club further down the line when, you know, Adam Webster gets sold for 750 grand, Jed Wallace money, um, other players, Dan Butler out the door, uh, Ben Close playing over, like I said, 100 games for Portsmouth. Uh, and that's saving huge money because you're not buying another player to take his place. So there's lots of investment uh, and lots of players that have played. Alex Bass now who's a young goalkeeper who I think there was some interest from Crystal Palace for him. So these players are in and around it and it's saving the club money. Mm. Uh, so you'd like to think it works. It doesn't always. Uh, so are you t- are Sunderland still category one even now? Yeah. They're still there yeah. now. Well, that's fair play to them because that, 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 takes some, that takes some doing. Whether they can sustain that is another thing. And I, I think it's such a big year this year that we do get crowds back in the door. And it's a big year for Sunderland in terms of, as always, trying to get promoted. They're such a big club in terms of uh, their stature in the game. But it doesn't give you the divine right, as Portsmouth, we found out in Division uh, Division 2, the old Division 4, rattling around there for a few years with, with no money, no training round, substandard players, players that had been released by everyone else and end up at your door and, you know, think they're better than they are. And that's the problem you you find as well, the further you were down. The, the leagues that these players have got ideas above their station, they think they're playing for a big club, they're equally as good players. And you'll generally find out they're not. Mm. They're substandard. Yeah. So, yeah. but it is what it is. And agents play a big part uh, and persuading clubs that their client has three or four clubs after them. People get worried that, you know, and they end up signing players that are not the right ones or not the ones who can sustain it for a period of 50, 60 games in a season. And um, players that have got the, the minerals to, when things are turning against them, to not suddenly have a calf injury or a groin strain or a hamstring injury. Uh, they're staying out there playing when they're getting a bit of stick from the Sunderland fans or the Portsmouth fans or the Swindon fans because your team's not doing great. And the character of players nowadays, um, yeah, it needs a lot of work. Yeah, and just one one other criticism I think that Sunderland fans have uh, at kind of our um, younger players and our, our kind of academy system over the last few years has been that I don't think we've sent enough players out on loan to get that experience. Um, we had last season, uh, Jack Diamond went to Harrogate, uh, Harrogate Town and, and had a fantastic year and he's come back um, almost a different player. You know, you can see yeah. he's he's almost come back a, a man and he's ready for first team po- football. I mean, it, how do you get that balance right between trying to nurture players within the academy and trying to get them out on loan to get that first team experience? Well, it's, it's a bit of a shock for players who've been used to such a fantastic environment, as you suggested, as Sunderland's Category 1 Academy is perfect pitches, I'd imagine, 
They get their meals every, you know, breakfast, dinner. They've got every amenity available to them. And then suddenly, you know, they do progress and, and, and the club sees value in the players and, and they're taken on as pros. But um, as all the, the coaches will know in there, they're trying their best trying to get these players physically and more importantly, mentally ready to take on the step of playing out in the Stadium of Light. Listen, I've played there. I played at Roker. You know, you go out there and the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. And I played at Fratton Park, 18,000, and the expectation, the weight of expectation, they don't, they, they're not experiencing it enough. Um, under 23 leagues, I've watched that. It, it's tippy tappy, pretty football. But when you get into proper men's leagues in and around the Northeast or anywhere else in the country where you've got 29, 30 year olds who are working and then playing in the evenings, you know, these lads have been through the systems in, you know, at clubs before. They've probably been at Sunderland as kids, they've grown up, they're men. And they're playing against you. And then these kids are sent from this lovely environment to, you know, right in your face, no messing around environment. Um, there's not much playing out from the back. There's not much playing through the lines. It's get it forward, get around it and get stuck in. And that's the element of the boy you've mentioned there has probably managed to cope with that because mentally he's probably uh, quite tough and he probably has been for a long time. And that's... Um, I found the biggest thing in, in the players I've had to deal with over the last eight years in, in the academy and, and, and youth development, etc. is the mentality of the players now. Um, I don't like saying it because I'm an academy manager of Swindon, but players are soft now. The whole environment is soft. Coaches are not allowed to be direct uh, as they really want to be um, to get the best for these lads and give them their, their, their knowledge and experience about what life's about playing Um you have to earn the right to play. You have to earn the respect of other people around you to play um, at the top level. And you have to do it week in, week out. Um, and like I said, I mean, I've rolled into, for example, Arsenal's car park uh, for their under 18s. My God, I mean, I've never seen, you know, I've not had a car like that for 20 years. But this is this is where it's going. You know, my main aim as a player was to make my league debut. That's all it was about. Make my league debut. Say I've made it and done it. Now it's about, well, what car can I get first and da da yeah. So that's the environment that's changed. Um, that's why sometimes it's hard to get players through because they're not mentally right. But I'm sure Sunderland battle the same sort of battles we do, um, no matter where you category one, two or three, that you're trying to find the right players with the right mental state to be able to cope with going to maybe a non-league ground. I mean, I don't know, Blythe, Harrogate, something like that. Mm. I don't know, somebody and something different out of their comfort zone. And it's the one that can cope with that inevitably are the ones that come back to Sunderland or any club and manage to force their way nearer the first team than other players. So, yeah. But that's hard to create that environment in a Category 1 environment, if that makes sense, yeah. because it has to work in a certain way. Whereas yeah. in a Category 3 where I am, it's still a bit rough and ready, but we've still got an, a soft underbelly of of uh, the situation so but uh, yeah it's it's quite difficult and we also find that sometimes some of the boys that come later into the academy haven't been there since there was there were eight and nine the boys that arrive into academy later on maybe 13 or 14 are generally the boys who have played soccer with their mates and played local football and then get picked up at a later age they're the boys that have gone on and made scholarships and made pro contracts because they've had that element of not as much pressure for six or seven years. They've just played with their mates and they've enjoyed it rather than being on a cons constant scrutiny from nine and having reviews and 
you know, I know it sounds like I'm, there's, lo there's a lot wrong with the system. There's a lot right with it in academy world, but there's a lot wrong with it. And I personally think that to make a journey from the night, you know, like, for example, Scott Twine, who's, who I mentioned is one of our uh, academy boys who's now getting experience at Newport and scoring goals. He's made that journey since he's nine. And that's a long journey. I mean, he's only 20. I mean, that's 11, 12 years, you know, under scrutiny every week. And uh, that must be difficult for the players as well. And lots of them fall out of love with the game. And the ones who have the mental strength in inevitably have the character, maybe not as technically good as other players, uh, not as naturally gifted, but the ones with the mental strength, are the, uh, the, the core mental strength are the ones that generally uh, will make it further forward than anyone else uh, moving forward in, in category, either category one, two or threes. It's it's funny you should say that. I think uh, Sunderland fans got a big shock. We we played um, Aston Villa under twenty threes in the EFL Trophy, won eight one. Yeah, and it was just it was it was men against boys, and although you could tell that that kind of a very young Aston Villa side, but they were, they were technically technically very good. It didn't. I don't think they won a header all night, or won a or won a tackle, or looked like they wanted to win a tackle. Um, and it was, yeah. Because it they're not used the to it, to and watch. it's not their fault. It's just the way things have been set up, and it's it's the way that the uh, you know the Premier League have their format. And I mean, I, I mean, as you can watch a, a Premier League game now, you know the keeper has it, he plays out. They come forward, teams drop off, and it's you know it's quite laboured, quite slow. You're waiting for it to get into the last third of the pitch before you actually take a bit of an interest, because you know that's the way the game's gone now, and that's the way it is at you know twenty ones, twenty threes football. You go and watch it, and it, it's 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 not real football in terms of most of these lads. Then struggle after, say, for example, you've been released by Aston Villa uh, under twenty threes. Most of them are going to struggle to find a way in football because you can't then go, you know, play for Tamworth you know, unless you're mentally fine and up for it and up for the challenge. Then it's going to be a very difficult job because the lads at Tamworth have been out of the game quite a while and they're physically ready to to take on the challenge week in week out have a job and work and and, and play football and the lads really struggle and uh, that is unfortunately there's some brilliance that's come out of the academies don't get me wrong there's some being fantastic players but also there's there's lots of players who've fallen by the wayside and then can't find their way back into the game whereas when I certainly left um, United I still you know I had plenty of opportunities as long as I was uh, perform okay to get back into the game because we were all mentally strong enough in the main to to deal with going and playing men's football. I mean, when, when I was at Man United as a kid, we used to play South Liverpool. Men's team are under, you know, you're talking under 16s up to under 18s. In our league was South Liverpool. That was a Tuesday night in Liverpool against grown men and you were 16 to 18. I mean, that was just, I mean, I think about it now, I wouldn't even dare send my, you know, any lads from Man United <laughs> to South Liverpool on a Tuesday night. <laughs> But you know Eric Harrison, the, the coach at United, he loved it. Mm. He said, "This is where the, this is where you make your living. This is where I can see who's got the um, the minerals to to go out there and play against thirty three year olds who are scousers against little Man United players." And you certainly learn, learn to step away, check your shoulder, see the tackle coming, see the fl flailing arm coming, and you soon learn quickly. And that's what's missing. Uh, yeah. But you know the game's moved on. And I don't want to sound and harp on like some old um, ex-pro who's bitter about things. I'm not because I'm I'm in it and I'm trying to educate uh, our academy lads to be stronger, tougher mentally, and under make them understand. Uh, and parents, uh, you know, that's half the battle as well. But um, yeah, that was then. This is now. Things move on. But uh, I certainly 
hope that the likes of Sunderland can find their way back somehow uh, into a, a strong position as I hope Portsmouth do well and Swindon do well moving forward. So they're the teams I look out for. Well, uh, Eric Harrison didn't, uh, he brought one or two on, so he had a good Yeah, record, so he didn't do bad, he didn't do bad to be fair. And it wasn't uh, just the uh, the famous boys that he had a bit, a bit later down the, the line. There were some good players that went on and made yeah. careers. So that, Saturday's game, so obviously last last season, fantastic achievement, especially you know under the circumstances, still won the league points per game. Fantastic achievement after finishing 13th the season before. Uh, this season in League One, being two wins and three defeats so far for Richie Wellens' team. Um, have the results reflected the game so far or have Swindon kind of been unfortunate to come away with three defeats? Um, well, I watched the game on Saturday. I watched it through the eye, the eye player um, scenario and uh, I didn't think they, I mean, possession wise, they do keep the ball well. Um, but they were, you know, lacked a little bit in the last third of the pitch. They were, they weren't as um, as strong as they were last season. Yeah, they just find it tough at the moment uh, in terms of that consistency. That 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 their patterns of play, which you'll see at the weekend, are good. That, that they are confident on the ball. Uh, it's whether they're they're strong enough up front and defensively to uh, to hurt teams through the season. I think it's important that I, I'd be very surprised. I wish they, I'd hope they will, uh, but I'd be, I'd be quite surprised if they're up and around it at the end of the season, if the current situation stays as it is with, with the fact of uh, limited funds to get any other players in, etc. Uh, I don't think we're anywhere near the the um, the cap, the salary cap in terms of what, what, what the club is in, in, in a position to offer players. So subsequently, when you lose Owen Doyle, uh, as we did at the end of the season, couldn't afford to keep him on, etc., uh, Jerry Yates uh, went on from uh, from us and, and Rotherham onto Blackpool. Um, so when you're missing players like that, uh, Zeki Fryers is currently, I think he's injured at the minute. Uh, Paul Caddis is struggling as well, uh, I think, for the weekend. Who's an experienced, good player? Um, so it's going to make it an interesting game. So I'm sure their confidence um, is not great at the minute um, because they just haven't managed to um, be consistent enough both... Um, um, up front and particularly at the back so it'll be interesting to see how it goes um, I'm hoping obviously they win uh, because obviously it, it's, it keeps them up there and the first and most important thing and it's obvious that, that they need to get enough points to, to be in the division uh, Richie Wellens did a fantastic job last year and I think he's probably a little bit frustrated this year with, with how things have gone he signed players the club have brought players in as well and uh, yeah they're not quite at the standard that they were last year and I think overall you know, if he manages to to get them into the the playoff positions this year, he'll have done a fantastic job. So it'll be interesting to see how the the rest of the season pans out. I certainly don't think we're as strong as last year in terms of our overall group. Uh, so it's going to take a lot of work on the training ground to get this particular group up to up to speed. And particularly when you take away Owen Doyle's goals from last year and the amount of goals and and Yates's contribution as well in goals. And we also lost Lloyd Isgrove. He didn't uh, sign a contract and. Um, I think it was Kane Woolley went off to off to Tranmere. So there's four centre, you know, four forward players that haven't really um, w- w- will be tough to replace, and they had a bit of experience as well. So yeah, it'd be difficult. We have to rely on the loan market as well. And uh, Richie's got his uh, certainly his work cut out a lot more this year than certainly last year. Last year he was, you know, things were great, uh, and 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 the, the fans and returned to the county ground really saw some fantastic football at times, uh, and they were a little bit spoilt really. So I think they're just going to have to to bed down and accept that this year, uh, with a lot of graft, might be okay. But it's going to be, I think, a, a long season where the expectations just need to be dampened down a little bit. 
But if, if, mm. if, like I said, they get into the playoffs, it would be an absolutely huge achievement. Now, that would be incredible if uh, they do that two seasons in a row. And I saw, um, looking, just looking at the game so far as well, I saw um, Johnny Smith has weighed in with a couple of goals from midfield. But uh, So who, who are the players do you think could, could cause Sunderland problems on Saturday? I'll be honest, I've, I've not been allowed to go to the ground. So <laughs> I've not really seen too much apart from watching it on the EFL. So yeah. you, you're probably telling me uh, Johnny Smith looks a direct player. Uh, he scored a couple of uh, decent goals. I watched the game for the first time uh, on on Saturday, like I said, live uh, through, through through the TV. Uh, and like I said, it was it, it wasn't it wasn't great, but it, it was okay. Um, yeah, no one's really standing out at the moment. Who's who's you know who you you think well you know you need to be really wary of him. Um, but certainly they've got a little bit of work to do, like I said. And if I'd watched them a little bit more this season and had the opportunity to get into the ground. Uh, which I'm not allowed into the ground, by the way, um, to watch a game, um, then I'd be in a bit a better position to, to to give you a little bit more feedback. So at the minute, I'm really seeing what you're seeing. Um, so it's a mixed bag of hot and cold. They could turn up and really turn it on, or it could be Sunderland's day, and you know, nice and comfortably. I don't think there'll be a middle ground, if that makes sense. That's pretty much been uh, Sunderland. We're, we're unbeaten so far, but I, I wouldn't say we've... Uh kind of hit the ground running this season it's <laughs> we've been kind of grinding the results away yeah but, I uh, certainly think Sunderland need to be careful uh, they need to be careful because if they get the passing game going uh, and, and and the movement patterns right they can cause lots of teams lots of problems so they just need to be careful Sunderland in how they approach it I mean at the moment you'd say they were favourites uh, to win the game but um, like I said it's like I said, it's a funny old game. We've all seen the ups and downs of it. Like you said, as you mentioned earlier on, us arriving at Roker Park all those years ago, expecting to win and end up getting beat 4-1. So you've just got to be very careful. And uh, I'm not good at predicting results and fixtures and, and games. That's, unfortunately, that's never been my strong point. It's a fascinating game on Saturday. So let's uh, hope it's a, it's a good game for all concerned. It's just a shame um, we have to watch on through the screens rather than actually being there. But uh, but on that note, um, Alan, I'd just like to say thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating and I really appreciate you taking the time out for us. No, I really enjoyed it. Love talking about football. You know, like I said, fond memories of playing at Sunderland many, many times, uh, getting some good results, bad results. Like I said, Borley, kicking me around the park, uh, which <laughs> is always something to be mindful of. And obviously we, we shared a great moment, certainly for me personally, at Wembley. So, Sunderland will always play some part in in, in my life because I have to talk about them because I scored against them, albeit via deflection, to win the playoff final. So, uh, yeah, you know, thank you very much. I enjoyed it and do it again sometime. Sounds good. And, and all the very best of the season. I hope, hope, uh, hope to see you on a on a training ground or a, or the side of a pitch uh, that, very soon. That, that would be, be nice. Roll on November the 2nd. That would be nice. Thank <laughs> you. Good stuff. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 